Good morning. Wow, it's good to be together today and to spend this time in the Lord's Word. I want to thank you for the great number of cards and emails and texts and calls and a variety of things that you have done to encourage me, uh, to pray for me. As uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hitting about 90% today, so I'm feeling a good bit better, and I thank God for that, and I appreciate all you've done to encourage us. I uh, Only on a couple of occasions in the time of my ministry as a pastor <clears throat> have I felt as... Um, as uh, pressed by the enemy um, about the topic as I have in this series on depression and anxiety and and focusing on Psalm 73. So I just want to kind of be confessional to you that it's been a great struggle for me. And I I think I've felt my weakness, my humanity, um, more through this than any other time. I think God... Uh, coincided this illness that I had with uh, a purpose to help me uh, in my weakness understand things better, maybe to be better at communicating them. And so I'm, I'm just really thankful that God made me sick because he taught me some things that I could not and did not know beforehand. And I praise him for that. And I am really thankful that I can talk to you today. From his word, I want to address something as we do, um, and and it's it's important that I address it because I think it relates to where we are. Um, a lot of times, when somebody like a pastor gets up to speak to you about something about a topic, you probably and and like I have uh, said something like this: "Is what does he know about that?" He hasn't experienced that. He doesn't understand. And I think you're right. I really do. I think you're right. I think that there are a lot of things that I'm going to cover in my preaching ministry that I don't understand at the level that you do. And and I can't. But that doesn't disqualify me from doing it. Uh, In fact, Sherry and I have two daughters. Um, Both of them were were born at a hospital. That's good. I like hospitals. Um, and, and, and believe it or not, both of the doctors that delivered the babies were men. Now, do you know what? They do not understand what Sherry was going through. They don't. Neither one of them had ever had a baby. Neither of them had ever been pregnant. They'd never given birth. They didn't know what labor was like. But I'll tell you what, they had some information that was really helpful for us. And they brought us through some things that even though they had not experienced themselves, they helped us experience them in a healthy way. And so I'm here to tell you, I have not been where you are or where you've been. But I have some information that is better than what a medical doctor knows. I have the Word of God. I have a calling and I have a confidence that what He has to say to you here today eternally matters. So I'm here. And I'm glad you're here too. And I love you. And this is a privilege. So let's go to God's Word. Psalm 73. 
let's see how we got to where we are. When we opened up five weeks ago, we said that there was an anchor in Asaph's life. Psalm 73.1, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He was saying, God is good in this experiential relationship, and God is good in the transformation that comes through this relationship, the purity of heart that comes from knowing Him in this relationship. And so he said, that's my anchor, that's my worldview. My worldview is premised on God is good, and this comes from the Scripture. That's where Asaph learned that. Then Asaph makes a very candid admission. That was the second thing we covered. And in chapter uh, Psalm 73, verse 2, he says, But as for me, I'm not sure that at a point in my life that I, I think I no longer believed that that anchor was true. I think I got to a place where I wondered, is God really good? And so he says it. He said he almost apostatized. As for me, my feet came close to slipping. My steps had almost stumbled. He's talking about leaving the path of following God. It's a very clear picture in Old Testament terms of diversion from faith. Apostasy. Leaving one's faith. Then the next week we talked about the anxiety that came with that. And we laid that out in verses 3 all the way down to verse 16. And we showed how his focus got off of these truths about God onto himself and his situation, onto others and their situation. And he became very anxious. And we said that anxiety was kind of like a shovel with which we dig the hole of depression. And anger and frustration make us dig deeper and faster and more efficiently so that we can literally, by our own action, dig ourselves into deep depression. We also said that not all depression is like that. If I were going to come up here and talk to you about any particular subject, it's important for you to know I couldn't cover every aspect of any one subject especially you guys always like to go and eat lunch at a reasonable time, and so I know that if I really kind of flesh that out to that nth degree, we'd be here all day, and, and that probably wouldn't be productive either. And so here's what we've tried to do. We've tried to hit the main parts of that, and I'm sure that somewhere in what we've shared, you've said, that really doesn't fit me. I'm, I'm good with that. But the Lord's Word will fit you at some place in your journey, and I think the way that I'm pointing you no matter what it is that's been the cause of anxiety or depression in your life, that God's Word will speak to that and can speak to that. And maybe today you'll see how that happens. And then we talked about how that anxiety turned in, and we spoke last week on anguish and angst, and and that those words came from the same sort of Greek and Latin source and kind of originally had the same meaning, but in modern society they've changed. Anguish is the pain itself, and angst is when the pain confuses your belief system and it causes you to call into question the things maybe that you formerly held or your worldview. And the word angst has kind of become popular since around the 50s and 60s, and now there's a genre of music called angst music. And if you really want to see a good example of angst music, now I don't recommend the song. Y'all got that? But the song by R.E.M. called Losing My Religion is a very good example of an angst song. These kids grew up in 
nice, comfortable Georgia. We're a music group that kind of formed in the University of Georgia and, and came through their own experiences to really question all the things that they had held before. And so they wrote a song called Losing My Religion. It's a very powerful song. Uh, it's dirty, so be careful. Um, the lyrics are, are very vile. But I, but I want to say that that, had, that song lit a fire in that time. And more angst music has really grown out of that in that time. And uh, I know you're all going to YouTube right now. Don't do that right now. Um, okay. So in this angst, he hits the bottom. Asaph does. And he admits it. And that bottom is kind of given to us. We talked last week in verse 13. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. And then he comes down to verse 21 and 22 and tells how he had even become desensitized to anything. He had become insensitive and unresponsive to God and to his word and to truth and to really anything. And he had fell into that funk of depression where you just are kind of paralyzed. And he says, I was senseless. I was ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Um, I I just was uncorrectable, unturnable, and I just stayed in that funk. Now, Asaph never tells us the time frame of all this. We seem to feel like the psalm covers many years. It doesn't seem like an instantaneous thing. It seems like something that drug on to the place that it wore him down and began to affect him. And so, basically, by the time we get to what we covered last week, Asaph is fully, deeply depressed so much so that it has changed the function of his life. And now, here is a guy who was one time a very vibrant worship leader in the house of God, is now a senseless and ignorant beast before the Lord. Those are his words. And so he's unresponsive. And so he's in such a deep depression at this point that he's almost non-functional. And some of you have gotten to that place, or maybe you're there or you're headed there right now. And so that's where he was. And so what we're going to talk about today is the place I've been wanting to get to all along, which is this week and next week, and it's the answer. Asaph gives the answer, and it's a glorious, glorious thing. And I've given you a shorter outline than normal today, although I have a lot on the screen to show you, and you can write it in, because there's just three key words I want you to take home today. Those key words, I think, will help us in functioning with our own depression and addressing it, or helping others who are in the midst of it, or even understanding them while they are going through it. So I ask you to grab your outline, and I need to just check some of my notes and make sure I'm doing all I'm supposed to be doing here. Yeah, okay. All right, yeah, here here we are. So number one, Asaph's answer came in the midst of his hurt. God did not take Asaph out of his hurt to answer his need. This is a very important understanding of what's going on in Asaph's life, and I think important for all of us. Sometimes God chooses not to take us out of the depression. Sometimes God chooses not to relieve it quickly or instantly. Now, I'm not saying you're doomed to always be depressed. That's not what I'm saying. But the answer didn't come after everything got okay. It came right in the middle of its worst part. 
And so what I want to encourage you is to think that no matter what's going on, God can meet you right where you are in the midst of the worst part of it. And right there in that place, he can answer your fundamental need of the moment. He's able to do that and willing and often does. And so sometimes it's in the very rock bottom of the experience of anxiety or anguish or angst or depression. It's at the rock bottom when you think all hope is lost that this light comes on and in that sense of hopeless despair, God speaks. And so I don't want you to let Satan rob you of the hope God has for everyone by telling you that you have to get relief before you can get better. This is very important. Sometimes you will get better before you get relief. And when I say relief, that means the situation or the circumstance that seemed to produce the depression or the anxiety. And so here is God very interested. And so Asaph's answer came in the midst of his hurt. I want to add three things to that, and that's why I left you some space. First, go ahead, Peggy. God is interested in our hurts. This is an important understanding from the Bible that you and I need to know. God is not aloof in your hurts. He is not absent in your hurts. He is not uncaring in your hurts. God is interested. The psalmist said it this way, What is man that thou art mindful of him. What does that mean? It means that you are on God's mind right now. He is mindful of you. He's thinking about you and your circumstance. This God who made all of the heavens and all of the earth, this glorious, divine holy, unchangeable being at this very moment is so intent on your situation that when the psalmist realized it, he actually praised him and said, Who am I that you would think about me? And so God is in your circumstance right now very interested. He's not forgotten you. And His Word to you is clear. The Apostle Paul said, but God who comforts the depressed. So all through the Scripture, there is this knowledge that is shared with us through the Lord's Word that God is interested in your heart. I want to take it a step further. God is also, help me out Peggy, involved in our hurts. I want to tell you something that a lot of folks struggle with. I want you to go to the book of Job, and I want you to hear a word from Job. It is not a final word. It's just before Psalms, so if you're already there, you can 
put it in reverse and come back here to the very beginning of the book of Job. And you know Job had some really bad stuff happen. You guys, you've read it. If you haven't, it would be a great time to go and read it. You may not be uh, familiar with church or maybe the Bible's new to you. Go read the book of Job. You'll see what I'm talking about. But basically, Satan comes to God and kind of provokes him after God brags on Job. Satan says, well, you've put a hedge of protection around him. And so Satan gets to kind of abuse Job for a while. But Job understands what the word sovereignty means. Now, Job has to flesh out what sovereignty means, and I'm looking forward to doing that in our fall Bible study on Sunday nights. One of the studies I'm going to lead is to take us through the book of Job. I'm really excited about that because it speaks so much to these things that we're actually talking about now and answers a lot of questions about that book. But in the book of Job, you've got Job losing all of his children. You've got him losing all of his possessions. You've got him losing his health, and he's kind of at the end of himself and he's uh, scraping the, the sores off with a potsherd, which is a, a piece of pottery. He's, he's basically taking these, these boils off and scraping the ooze off and, and wiping it off on something with this. And it's really a nasty situation. And he's sitting there and his wife, and this is one of those moments where family is not always a good place to get advice. His wife says, curse God and die. So, by the way, your family may not give you the best advice. He says, you speak as one of the foolish women. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not also accept adversity? I want you to know that God is not just interested in your hurts. He's involved. There's nothing going on in your life that is not part of God's ultimate plan to save you and sanctify you. Nothing. If you are a child of His, Satan had to knock on God's door to fool with you. If you're not a child, God is even using what Satan is doing to you. He is using it to draw you to Himself. God not just interested in your hurts. God is involved. Job knew it. He knew that when his children died, God was involved. Satan had to ask permission to take them. God knew that when his cattle and his belongings all went, Job knew that God was in charge. He was in control. When Satan smote Job's body with boils, Job knew that God was in charge. Listen carefully. You must know that there is nothing that ever happens in this universe that is not ultimately tied to the plan of God to bring Himself glory and His creation good through the salvation of Jesus Christ. Everything is tied to that purpose. Everything. And so God is not just interested. He's involved. He is orchestrating, whether you call Him the first cause or the permitter, He is orchestrating through your hurts His great plan. And that plan is to save you from your sin and sanctify you out of your sin and seat you with Him in the heavenly places. That's His goal. Third, God is also intimate with our hurts. 
And I mean intimate at the highest level. Isaiah 53 says, Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. Everything you have ever felt, Jesus has borne it. He is intimate with your sufferings. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that because the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus also partook of the same in order that through death He might break the power of the one who had the power of death, that is the devil. And that through suffering and death, He might free you from the fear of your own death that has held you in slavery all of your life. It says that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we have, yet without sin. The word sympathize means to be intimate with your experience. And so God is not only interested and involved, God through Christ is intimate with your hurts. He knows them experientially on your behalf. That's why He carries our sorrows. He bears our burdens. He bears our iniquity. He bears our shame. He bears our guilt. He is intimate. And so Asaph's answer didn't come afterward. It came in the middle. And we need to be aware in the middle of our hurts right now, no matter what's going on, God is interested. He has stated it. God is involved. He has proven it. And God is intimate. He sent Christ to verify. And so wherever you are right now, God's interest, His involvement, and His intimacy is a personal promise to you. And if you are a follower of Christ, Jesus has made it intimate at this level. I will never leave you or forsake you. And so He is intimately present right now with every believer. And if you are not a believer, He wants to have that relationship with you. He offers it. So, His answer came in the midst of His hurt. Some of you are in the midst of your hurt. Or you've been in your hurt. Or you're headed to some hurt. And I want you to know that God can speak to us. C.S. Lewis said something like this. He whispers to us in our pleasures but He screams at us in our pain. And sometimes that's where we hear Him most clearly. Now, here's what Satan is doing, not ultimately, but temporally in your hurt. He wants you to think God is not interested. He wants you to think that God is not involved. And He wants you to think that God is not intimate and understanding. And so He wants you to feel that nobody cares. That's one of the things he's always sowing. The enemy is sowing that. And he does it by saying this. You don't have to endure this anymore. You can escape it so that you can enjoy things now. And he does that as a temporal promise. And basically what Satan is wanting to do, he's wanting you in the midst of enduring this kind of hurting, he wants you to find some sinful way of escape so that you can have temporal enjoyment and not worry about eternity. And that's Satan's lie. And what he's offering you very often in the middle of your hurt is a kind of escape 
that could either doom your soul or destroy your witness. We're going to cover that in depth right at the end. So I want you to know that there are two things happening in the middle of your pain. First, God's interested, involved, and He is intimate. But also Satan is right there trying to use your pain and your hurt, your despair, your agony, your anguish, your angst, your anxiety to cause you to err in your judgment. Satan will even send very close people to you to trick you. My wife is very close to me, as I imagine Job's wife was to him. But she said, curse God and die. That was not good advice. So we need to make sure that in the middle of our hurt, that we have attentive ears who we're going to listen to. So that's where we're going now. Asaph's answer came when he sought help. This is one of the most important things that I can tell you about anxiety and anguish and angst and depression is that it is absolutely necessary for you to seek help. Many families suffer under the strain of depression of a family member who will not seek help, who feels like I can tough it out, I can call this on my own, I can control this myself, and they, they end up having this negative influence on their family because they're trying to bear this alone in some kind of pride or isolation. Listen carefully. I'm not saying to you to sit here and pity yourself and say, oh, what you're saying is I'm just a burden on my family. I knew that. That just makes me more depressed. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that God wants to help you, but there has to to be a place, a little spark, a little place in your life that you say, I need help. I need help. And that's a hard thing for Americans to say. We're so lift yourself up by your bootstrap and go do your thing and independence and autonomy. And we forget that God made us to live in community and He gave us people with gifts and abilities that we don't have. And so there comes a place in your journey that you may have to say, I need help. And you may have to go outside of yourself and look for help. Now I know this is true about Asaph because he tells it. Go back to Psalm 73 and look at what happens. His answer came when he sought help. He says in the depth of his despair as he's working through Psalm 73. He gets to that place of verse 16. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. And we're going to talk about what that actually means in just a minute. But he comes to this place and he, and he, and he needs help. And finally he says, until, verse 17, I came into or I went to the sanctuary of God. This is the place where Asaph seeks help. And he said, oh, so you're saying that you should go to church. No, that's not exactly what's said here. Back in the day, the sanctuary was, of course, the place of worship. It was the place of sacrifice. It was the place of the presence of God. But it was also the place where the priest was. And the priest served as sort of a local doctor 
If you had a hair that looked like it was forming leprosy, you'd have to go by the priest and say, hey, man, i got this thing right here that's coming up. Could you check this out? And the priest would come and he'd study it. Or if you had a little crust of skin kind of coming up on your face, maybe a little eczema or something, you'd have to go to the priest and he'd examine it and he'd actually test. And he had rules that he was given about how he could deal with those things. He's kind of a medicine guy dealing with those kind of things. He would even examine mold in your house. He was a mold remediator to find out if it was a leprous house or not, and if it had to be burned or if it had to just be cleansed. He also served as a counselor. When Hannah is there at the tabernacle, and she's before Eli, the priest, and she's mumbling in prayer, the priest, being the local counselor, says to her, he says, Woman, what are you doing drunk at church? (laughs) Because it looked like she was kind of talking to herself and maybe inebriated. And she says, Oh, no. I'm, I'm not drunk. I'm praying out to God because I want to conceive. And the, the counselor, the priest, gives her some counsel about what she should do. And later on, she hands her kid off to him. <laughs> and so this is a pretty big deal there. There's, there's this involvement at the sanctuary where there is help there. It's worship. It's God. It's His Word spoken. And then the priest and those who serve in the temple offer counsel and help to people. So he goes to get help. Many of you are at a place where you need help. And you need to choose carefully where you're getting it from because you might have somebody like Job's wife who's giving you some really bad advice. Sometimes you need professional help. Sometimes you need to go to somebody who gives over their time to know how to help people in these situations. That is important to know when. Sometimes you just need to go to a friend or a pastor, somebody who you know is going to tell God's Word to you and the truth. But there's this place where Asaph gets better because he goes to get some help. He uses the word until. That means up until he got some help, he was in a downward spiral. He was on his way down. He was crashing. He was ready to forsake his faith, blame God. He was ready for all these things. And so he's looking for help. Now, his desire for help was compelled by five things. I'm going to give them to you real quick. He was compelled to get help by five things. First, his situation. Asaph was not happy in his situation. Some of you get to a place where you're not happy in your situation, and Satan says, well, here's what we'll do. We'll just change your situation. We'll get out of that marriage, get out of that witnessing place, get out of that relationship, get out of that responsibility, get out of that church, get out of... And there's all these things that Satan will start tricking you with thinking that if you change your situation, it will actually change you. But that's not what Asaph learned. The second, he was compelled by his influence. This one's really important, really, really important. When I was um, pastoring at Evans Creek many years ago, I told somebody in Sunday school I'd been married 30 years today, and they looked at me like, that's a long time. I really am that old. And, and so a long time ago when I was pastoring at Evans Creek, this is back in uh, 91, 2, I got the opportunity to go and do a youth retreat uh, in north-central Mississippi at, um, at this big lake and campground. It was an absolutely beautiful place. 
And a friend of mine who was a youth pastor asked me to come and speak to his youth. And I said, what a great privilege. So we went up there, and I get to spend the time. And just before we had come there, there had been a huge storm, one of those straight-line wind things that had blown through. And so uh, there were some effects from that storm. And so I was out in the woods, and the woods there are very old, like old-growth woods, some those big trees, not just like a replanting, but some big trees. And so I was out there walking around, and I came upon something that interested me very, very much. And it was a tree that was laying down, and it was massive. I mean, it was probably... I would have to do two hands around it to get around it. So it's pretty big. And it was laid over. And and it had this really long trunk because it was old growth forest. So it had grown really tall with a few limbs at the bottom and a lot of limbs at the top. And so I could actually get on this log. And so I hopped up on this thing or climbed up. You know I'm too short to hop that high. But anyway, and so I'm, I'm walking along this tree. And, and it's like God is wanting to say something to me. And so I'm just kind of walking along. I'm kind of walking along. And, and it's like I'm, I'm praying and I'm thinking about the retreat and I'm walking along. And it's as if God is saying, okay, okay, I need to tell you something. I need to show you something. I need you to look at something. And so I'm walking along and all of a sudden I'm standing on the tree and he says, just look. Now it wasn't like an audible voice, but it was clear. And I looked. This great big tree when it had fallen, had crushed a number of little trees. And as I looked under the trunk of that tree and under the limbs, the massive limbs as I got up toward the top of this tree, underneath it were hundreds of little trees that were crushed, snapped off clean, crushed under its weight. And he said, this is spiritual influence. And what Satan wants to do is take people of influence and crash them down on little young souls and break their spirit, break their faith, break their hope, break their confidence. And so Satan wants to fail influential trees so that they crush the people under their influence. Listen to Asaph. 73.15 If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I should have betrayed the generation of thy children. Asaph knew if he tubed out now, if he gave in to sin now, if he turned from God now, he would be like a mighty tall tree blown over, crushing the fragile faith and hope of people under his influence. That's why Jesus said this. Woe to them who cause one of these little ones to stumble it would be better for him that an upper millstone be tied about his neck and he be cast into the sea. Our influence is very important in our community, in our home, in our church. And that's why Satan is always out to fell leaders so that they will hurt those under their influence.
Asaph was compelled because he knew that his influence mattered. And so he, he checked himself and said, I've got to get an answer. Next, he was compelled by his internal struggle. He wanted peace. He didn't have peace. Maybe he could have got some Xanax in his day. I don't know what the Xanax of his day was. It was probably liquor. Maybe he'd have got that. Now, if you take Xanax, I'm not getting on to you, but if you take Xanax to relieve your conscience, you do have a problem. If you drink liquor to relieve your conscience, you have a problem. If you do anything to relieve your internal struggle that is not the truth of God's Word and the help that God gives, you're in trouble. You're in serious trouble because what you're taking in is deceiving you to tell you it's going to be okay when it's not if you don't repent, if you don't resolve, if you don't seek the answer. And so this is very important. This is how illicit relationships get started. This is how uh, addiction to porn gets started. This is how so many bad things get started because people are looking for some kind of relief from an internal strife and they look to a place other than God. And Satan has a zillion answers that are wrong. And he wants to make you want to escape and relieve your suffering without dealing with the real issues. And so, he knew he had to have an answer because of his internal struggle. Next, he knew he had to answer because his conclusions didn't agree with the Bible. He knew when he came to the place and said, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. He said, Huh, that doesn't agree with Scripture. If the way you're dealing with your reality disagrees with Scripture, I want to warn you, there is no good in that. If the way you're trying to come out of your hurt disagrees with God's Word, it will bring more hurt. Satan is the dealer of hurt. And that's all he's after. And he's a stinking liar. And so, if you're on this and you are starting to make some conclusions about how you need to proceed and they don't agree with the Bible, y'all remember Lost in Space, the old one? Warning, Will Robinson! You remember that one, the robot? That's where we are. Warning! If your conclusions disagree with God's Word and you're proceeding in a way that God is not honored, you're not relieving your pain. You're storing up more. So, Asaph got to this place. He said, oh, dear God, I've come to some conclusions that just don't agree with what I know to be true in the Bible. I've got to have some help. So he reached out. Finally, he was driven by his condition. He realized he had become unresponsive to God's Word. If there is any serious indicator of all His indicators, it's when you or I are like a beast before God. The word He says is behemoth. That's this great big old animal that simply won't be turned. He just lumbers about wherever he wants to go. I know that's a great illustration. And, and, and he just lumbers, and he doesn't listen to anybody. He's not directed by, he just goes on. And he said, you know what? I, you know how I knew I was in trouble? It was when God's Word didn't matter to me anymore. Listen carefully. 
if you're at a place in your journey and God's Word is not matter about the decisions you're making, you are in trouble. You need help. God wants to help you. He knew from His condition, I was like a beast before you. I was embittered. I was senseless. I was ignorant. That's a warning sign. He has five warning signs that he needs to get help. Not pleased with the situation. Aware of his influence. Has an internal anguish that he's trying to solve with something. His conclusions don't match God's Word. And now he's become desensitized to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Trouble. So, um, man, uh, see, go ahead, Peggy. Asaph's help determined the outcome of his situation. This is really important. The word until is the break point of his fall. He's falling. He's spiraling. He's going down. He's headed for disaster. He's headed for destruction. He's headed away from God. He's going. And then that beautiful word steps in there. And he says, until, verse 17, I went to the sanctuary of God. So God brought him the answer. Where you find your answer will determine the outcome of your situation. This is very important. Satan says, don't endure. Please escape so that you can enjoy now. God says, endure now so that you will escape the eternal wrath and condemnation and you may enjoy heaven forever. Satan's plan is instant gratification. God's plan is eternal gratification. You have to choose. You have to. Listen to me. You can't have both. That's Satan's trick. His trick is to say, you can do what you want now and because of grace and forgiveness, still go to heaven. Jesus said, narrow is the road that leads to life. It is hard-pressed and few find it. Broad is the way that leads to destruction and it's packed full. Your path right now is telling God where you're headed. And so in the midst of this, God wants to help you, so let's close. Um, skip these next couple of slides. I'll have to cover those later. So here we are. Asaph's answer brought him hope. I love this. And, and so I've got to close this, and I'm going to compress it and flesh out the rest of it next week, and I'm really excited about that. It brought him hope. Look at what happens in verse 17. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. What happens here? Letter A, first, God broke his hope in wrong things. God did something here and said, Asaph, you can't hope in your health. You can't hope in your happiness. You can't hope in your situation. You can't hope in your conclusions. You can't hope in the things of this earth. You have but one hope, and that is God is speaking, and that is me. And so he breaks his hope in the wrong things. He breaks his hope in his health. He breaks his hope in his situation. He breaks his hope in this false religion and doctrine that he's kicking around. He breaks his hope in those things. He brings him down to the point where he says, help me God! And God says, I got you where I want you. Here's the answer. 
Asaph, your hope is not in now. So let's go to the next one. God brought his hope into eternity. God took him and showed him. See, Asaph was, he was envious of, of wicked people. He was envious of sinful and arrogant and pompous and wealthy people who had gotten their, their stuff uh, apart from God. He was envious of them. And he was thinking, I want to be like them. I want them. I want to be a part of what they're doing. They are having fun, man. And they're having fun now. I'm not having any fun. I'm suffering. And God says, whoa, 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 time out. You do not need to be envying these guys. Now listen, think about this. Think if you were standing at your door and you were looking outside and you saw somebody show up at your neighbor's house. And, 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 and they brought in a brand new Ferrari and gave it to your neighbor. And then they brought in all kinds of furniture and gave it to your neighbor. And they brought in a, and redid, remodeled their house and gave it to your neighbor. And all of a sudden, your neighbor's just getting all these things. And you're going, man, I wish I had what they have. They don't even like God, but look at all the stuff. They got all these things. And look, they're out playing in their yard and they're all frolicking, and and then all of a sudden you catch the notice of something. You look at the guy who's bringing it, and you see his face for the first time as he drops off another car, and he drops off more things, and you catch his face, and, and you go, oh, dear God. I was watching America's Most Wanted last week, and there's a mass murderer out, and they showed his face. That's him! And all of a sudden, you quit envying your neighbor and you realize this guy's out to kill them all. And he's plying his trade to kill them with stuff. And he's setting them up to trust him so he can murder the whole family. And you look out your window and your gut sinks and instead of envy, all of a sudden you have concern for the lives of your neighbor. That's what God did to Asaph. He showed Asaph how Satan was using all of these things that Asaph admired. And Satan was using them to trick these people into eternal damnation. And Asaph woke up and went, Dude, he's setting them up to kill them all. He's trying to take them all out. He's just leading them all to hell. And Asaph's heart changed. And rather now than envying them, he pities them. And he becomes concerned. And he wants to give his message of hope to them. And you see that God's going to use his message of hope to them. And all of a sudden, Asaph's mind has changed about what he's seeing because he now sees the end game. God brought his hope into eternity, finally. God bore witness of his hope through his testimony. Somebody asked me last week, and, and, and this is probably one of the best questions I've ever been asked, especially dealing with depression. They said, if, if our hope, it's not the first time I've been asked it. I've been asked it in a little different angle before. If our hope is in heaven, why does God leave us on earth? Now, that's a good question. That's a good question. Why didn't Chase, as soon as he came up out of the water this morning, having confessed his faith in Christ, why didn't God have a little thing up in there that goes, zoop? Chase is on his way out and says, see y'all, he's good. Why doesn't God do that? 
When Asaph got this, it was amazing. The reason you are being left here, even in your depression, even in your pain, even in your anxiety, even in your anguish, even in your angst, even with your physical sickness, even with your relational brokenness, the reason God is leaving you here is there are more than two billion people on this earth who's never even heard of your hope. And there is a neighborhood around you that have heard but don't understand it. And there's a co-worker with you and a family member. And God has left you here to bear witness through your testimony of the hope that you have. Look at the very last line of Psalm 73. Blows me away. And this is when it came together for me this morning. And it was like God just blew my mind up and He said, this is it. What does He say in verse 28? But as for me, the nearness of my God, we're going to talk about that next week, is my good. I've made the Lord my God, my refuge, that I may do what? What does He say? That I may tell of your works. Why is Asaph still on earth in the middle of his suffering? Because God has a message for Asaph to proclaim that will deliver people from hell. And God is very interested in delivering people from hell. He sent His Son to bring it about. And He's leaving you on earth to find hope in Him in heaven so that you will communicate that. But listen to Satan's strategy so that you are warned and you are encouraged. First off, Satan wants... I wrote it down. Let me me give it just like I wrote it. Satan wants to turn you from God through your suffering as Asaph almost did. He wants you to turn against God through your suffering. That's what Satan wants. That's what Job's wife said. Curse God and die. God may take the person very closest to you and allow them a momentary lapse of reason because the enemy is trying to use them to destroy you. If anything that anybody ever tells you, no matter how close, disagrees with God's Word, Satan, through suffering, wants to turn you from God and turn you against Him. Second, Satan, through sin, wants to taint you and ruin your testimony. If he can't turn you and have your soul, he will taint you so that you no longer are effective in the souls of others. The Apostle Paul said, if I myself, after having run and preached the gospel, turn aside to sin, then I will be disqualified. Now, is he saying he's not going to heaven? I don't think he's saying that. But I think his ability to be a good witness changed. And what Satan is trying to do through pulling you into sin as a solution for your suffering 
is that if you already belong to God and can't turn against Him because God will not ever leave you or forsake you, He will, through your sin, taint your witness so that people raise their eyebrow when you try to preach the gospel from a corrupt life. That has caused a lot of eyebrows to be raised since this Ashley Madison news started coming out. And you saw what happened to Josh Duggar's testimony when it came out. It was already tainted, but it was totally tarnished. Does that mean that God doesn't love Josh? No, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying when God shows up, when Josh shows up to talk to somebody right now, they're going to have a hard time listening. But listen to what God showed me this morning. And I both leapt for joy and and was broken at the same time. One of the things that the enemy's doing through depression is trying to lead people to suicide. He is. And he's effective. Satan is leading people to suicide all over the place. We talked about about every 12 minutes somebody in the United States takes their life. We talked about it's the third leading cause from uh, uh, 10 to 14, second leading cause from 14 to, I think, 35 of death. Unbelievable number of people taking their lives. Why? What does Satan have to gain in suicide? Well, think about this. Imagine that somebody was guilty of a crime and there was a witness who knew that they were guilty. Okay? So there's a witness that knows that this person is guilty of a crime. And that that witness's testimony is going to keep people from trusting in this criminal. And so that one who's going to be on trial, who is guilty, who is a criminal, they're going to try to do three things to that witness. They're going to try to turn them to their side. They're going to try to taint them so that nobody will believe what they have to say. But what else do criminals want to do to witnesses? What do they want to do to them? They want to kill them. Some of those TV shows we watch, one of the things we always freak out about is somebody's put in witness protection and then the the crime syndicate that's behind the one that they're witnessing against infiltrates and they kill the witness. And we all go, dude, now it looks like he's going to go scot-free. Here's what Satan wants in suicide. He wants to kill the witness. That's what he's after. He's trying to kill your witness. And he knows that if you off yourself, you cannot give testimony to how wicked Satan is in bringing sin and darkness and death to this world. Because nobody knows the smell and taste of sin and darkness and death as well as a depressed person because it seems like a wet, dark blanket that overwhelms them. And they hate their experience. Where did that experience come from? When Satan brought sin into the Garden of Eden, depression is a testimony against the king of darkness. He's a liar! And those who are rescued of it can come out and say the devil is a liar. And so what Satan wants to do is kill the witness. 
And that's why he's messing with your mind. That's not God. That's not good. That's the enemy and his darkness and he's in your head and he's toying with you. And you can get help today. Jesus wants to deliver you. He does not want you to kill the witness. He wants your witness to be glorious. He wants you to stand at the end and say, that I may tell of thy works. Because Jesus died to kill sin and defeat Satan. And Jesus wants you to know that. And so if you're entertaining, taking your life, I want you to know the devil's a liar. And I want you to run and get some help today. Not tomorrow. Today. He's trying to off the witness. God loves you. He knows He is involved. He is interested. He is intimate. And He wants to come to you today and do what He did for Asaph. He wants to pull your hope out of the things that won't help you. He wants to put your hope in Jesus. He wants to wash away your sin and take away your fear. And it may take days or weeks or months or years for you to get out. But He will never leave you. He'll walk through it all with you. He will hold you. He will embrace you. He will speak to you. He will not let you go. This is Jesus the King. And this is the Gospel of the King. And so I want you to come to Jesus today. I want you to do what the book of Hebrews says. We who have fled for hope in this refuge called Christ. Today you need to flee to Jesus. Run to Jesus. And whatever it is that is aching your soul, I want you to look to Jesus. And Jesus has many workers on this earth, professionals, counselors, friends, pastors, who love Him and who will tell you the truth. And no, we won't all understand what you've been through. But we have a book of help. And we have a Savior who is a help. And we have a King who is the ruler. And I want you to come to Him today. Would you bow I love you. But God loves you more than I could ever even know or imagine. And He is interested in you, involved with you, and intimate at this place. And He wants to save you from whatever it is right now. And I want you to come to Jesus. Some of you need to sit down. You need to write down on a piece of paper right now, I need help so that you will follow through with it. And you need to show that piece of paper to somebody today. No more being hung in this darkness alone. No more being isolated. Say it. I need help. And He's here to help you. We're here to help you. We'll refer you. We'll talk to you. We'll counsel you. We'll love you. I don't care how dark it is. We'll walk with you. Even if we don't understand, we're here. Come to Jesus and get help. He knows your hurts. He offers you help. And through His life, death, burial, and resurrection,